begin this message this morning with a, a story about a man who arrived home after having a long day at work. When he arrived home, he noticed there was some voicemail on the machine. You can tell this story's a little old. Who checks their voicemails now at home? Whatever. And there was a message on there from his 10-year-old daughter. Here's her message. I'm the lecturer at church Sunday. And I have that passage where Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You know that passage, right? Do the other Gospels have that same passage? Is it different in some of the other Gospels than it said in Matthew? Could you let me know because, no offense, Dad, but I think Jesus is wrong. I'm sure that doesn't sound like a good idea to a 10-year-old, right? But let's be honest, does it sound like a good idea to us? That turning the other cheek thing is a hard thing to do, right? As human beings, it's difficult for us. In fact, the history of interpretation reveals something we would rather not say, not at least not out loud. Sometimes we too are suspicious that Jesus might be wrong. So we explain away his words in various kinds of ways. For instance, in regard to these verses in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, different interpreters have written and said different things. One thing that's often said is Jesus is setting up a set of values to which his disciples should strive to live out. They are impossible, but that's the point. And in fact, by striving to live that way, however, even though they're impossible, we will live better than we would without those words, says one interpreter. Or another one seeking to make sense out of some of these verses says, words in the Sermon on the Mount reveal the impossibility of human righteousness, which prepares us for the advent of grace. Okay? Then another person writes, Jesus was speaking to his disciples as individuals. In the modern world, his advice would, it just would not hold up. Or, as someone else genius wrote, Jesus offering pragmatic advice to empower oppressed peoples is what's really going on here. When you, when you cannot force people to treat you justly, you can expose the injustice of the situation by your actions. Striking back in retaliation would only get you hurt. So confront the injustice without retaliating. <laughs> it's kind of humorous the things human beings will go to to justify our own actions or how hard some things appear to be in when we face them. But what I want to ask you this morning is a simpler question than all that's written in chapter 5. What has Jesus meant just what he said? What if this kind of living is the way that all disciples are called to live? What would happen if we meditated and heard these words without any self-defense, without any trying to make whatever is being written and said easier to understand by just kind of explaining it away? What if instead of in trying to explain it away, we just listen? to what Jesus would whisper to each of us. I'm going to read you through the 
verses chapter 5, 21 through verse 48. But I want you to listen to them just in kind of a short summary of each one, what Jesus was saying. Because this whole chapter is set up in antithetical kind of thinking. First, you have, you've heard it said, which comes from the laws of Moses and as they have been interpreted for years. And then Jesus says, but I say, that's the way the whole story rolls out. Now, understand that he has also said clearly that he did not come to do away with the law. In fact, he said that the whole law would be fulfilled in him, each and every part of it. Then uh, uh, he pops up and says something that's rather startling to us in verse 20 when you connect it to the verses that follow instead of the ones that just occurred because it's really both. When you read it and you hear these words, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then comes these six antithetical statements and stories to make his point. You have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I say, whoever is angry with his brother is guilty of going before the court. Whoever calls his brother a fool is in danger of the fires of hell. The next one, he says, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said that without giving the woman a writ of divorce when she leaves. But Jesus said, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus also says, whoever divorces his wife gives her a certificate of divorce. I got ahead of myself a little bit. I'm trying to hurry through these. It's kind of painful to read, right? As we meditate on them, just hear the plain spoken words. Everyone who divorces his wife except for unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Spoken in a very male-centered world. The next thing he addresses is you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say make no oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne or by the earth for it is God's footstool. Just say yes or no and mean what you say. Beginning in verse 38, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist evil ones. If they slap you on the cheek, turn the other one to them. If you're sued and someone wants to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. If you're forced to go one mile, go two. Give to those who ask of you, and do not turn away from one who wants to borrow from you. And then the last one, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Because loving those who love you is not rewarded. Evil people do the same kinds of things. Greet your brothers only. Everybody does that as well. What do you do more than what others do? Even the Gentiles greet their brothers with love. 
And then he sums it all up by saying in verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the power of those plain spoken words drives commentators out of their minds sometimes. <laughs> Literally. Because you see that when they hear those words, they just struggle so mightily with them. Now, when you think about that, when you think about their struggle, you have to ask yourself, well, what does he mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean? Who is your neighbor? That's the question commentators often write about when you're asking that. And then they try to define, and they quite frankly try to limit who your neighbor is. Because it's pretty frightening when you have to consider anyone in need as your neighbor. Look, I look out at y'all. Just having y'all as my neighbors is hard enough work, right? I mean, and, and if you only knew how hard a work it was uh, to love this neighbor, you'd be struggling with your feelings as well. We all know what it says. We all know what it feels like. But we come down to that point critically so where we have to ask the question so we might make an intelligent and a spiritual kind of choice. What does it mean? Well, I'm just going to offer a couple of simple solutions. And they may, they may sound simple. They can involve a lot more. You can look at any one of these stories and, and preach a sermon on them. But I, I'm trying to find the, the aggregate purpose of Jesus. You got your, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and, and the Pharisees. Not just the legalism part of it, but it's got to surpass what they believe is all that's required of them. Because Jesus, as he walked this earth, showed us what God really wants from us. And it's a lot more than the common culture expects. It's a lot different in the ways you relax in your relationships than other cultural habits. At times it's the same, but it's often so far out there that it makes you nervous. Think about it this way. What if Boy Scouts had to wear their uniforms everywhere they went? What if they had to wear their uniforms every sport they played, every test they took, every homework they filled out? What if they always had to keep the scouts, scout oath not only in them but on them so that everybody else would know if they were acting like a little jerk that they're not really a Boy Scout? <laughs> that would feel bad, wouldn't it? If everybody knew what you were thinking, knew what you were doing, you were not acting scout-like, then you'd come back to the troop and when you'd gather, you'd go, because they know. We do that every Sunday, by the way, in church. People gather and they come to church and they're looking around and wondering, I'm wondering if they know what last week was like. Not literally, it might not be horrible, but it might also not be a standard that would elevate what it means to follow Christ to the point that it was so easily seen that no one could miss it. You see, this tension between human nature and being children of God is real. And as long as we're breathing and living on this earth, that tension is going to always be there. But my brothers and my sisters, this is not meant to, to put us down. This is not meant to us to live in the throes of guilt, but rather quite opposite. It's meant to free us from guilt by reminding us that being perfect is something we can do. That following and being like Jesus is something that is humanly possible when the divine enters the picture. By the strength of the Spirit of God as individuals, we can be something we can never be on our own. 
by being fully human as God intended the humans to be in the beginning, we do radiate the very presence of Christ in our lives. Now, you may be thinking, but that's not always true. I'm not talking about always. I'm talking about right now. You're here to focus on Jesus, and you pull it off for an hour. There's nothing stopping you from focusing on Jesus this afternoon. There's nothing forcing you to think about it. When the best-looking man in town walks by you, ladies, you just start thinking about, man, that's a handsome dude. He's kept in shape. Like me. It's possible to live the life that Christ has called us to live. But we have pretty much convinced ourselves that we don't have to worry about that because, you see, we're all saved by grace anyway, which is true. But if you think the grace of God does not change you to make you look more and more like Christ, you are experiencing a different kind of grace than Scripture talks about. You're talking about that kind of cheap grace, which has no power to save. You say, are you setting up something I, I can never achieve? No, I'm not. I'm just simply not. I'm just setting up what Jesus said. And Jesus said, simply and straightforwardly, be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. How is that possible? It is possible because when Jesus came, he announced that the kingdom of God was here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And, and the kingdom of God is shorthand for the place where God reigns. And as long as God reigns in our lives at any and every moment of our existence, every time God is reigning, then we walk the way Jesus walked. Then we talk the way Jesus talked. Culturally, change for the culture you're in. But it is possible to allow that same reign of God that filled you with love and joy and peace to so infuse you that you are not the normal human. We don't need normal humans. We need humans the way God created them to be. We need humans who have been changed by the power of God's transforming grace. We need disciples who make different decisions. Last night, one of the disciples in the church was sharing. I'm not going to call her name so she can relax. I just gave her away. You know, it's 50% of you can relax. And she was talking about having fun, and she made a statement that, you know, I don't know that we've had any fun like most people in our married lives. We've just been busy, and we haven't taken a lot of time just to go have fun. And I thought, yeah, but... The two of you are the people I see at church all the time, praying and working and serving Jesus. That was more important to you than having a constant array of fun. But I did promise her. I said, well, we'll get together with some other church members, and we'll all go have fun. They can teach us how to do it. Now some of you are worried. What does it mean if I call you? Well, I think it's quite possible to have fun and be a Christian as well and to do fun things. I've been practicing it most of my life. But there's something to the fact that says you will have to have some fun in different ways, perhaps, than you might if you were not a follower of Christ. In fact, I think you will raise your children differently if you're a follower of Christ. In fact, I think you'll treat your neighbor differently if you're a follower of Christ. And in fact, I think as the grace of God runs through your veins, that you'll become more and more like Jesus, much to your surprise, but clear to those who are watching you live. Too often... One saint tries to compare their holiness to another saint sitting in church. I compare your sainthood to the people who aren't saints. They're not part of the kingdom. 
The kingdom has not come into them, for the reign of God has been shoved away from their lives. You who have accepted the reign of God are already doing more than you'll know. You are already salt and light. You are already infused with power, whether you use it or not. You already know the intimacy of God's love and your desire to love God back. You already are God's children. You are a blessed group of people. Now, all these are pointing out to the audience of the day is this is what we're expected to do. We're expected to live to the best of our own abilities like God lived if God were human, which is what Jesus did when he walked the earth. What it would, does it look like to put a God in a human body? Jesus is what it looks like. Now, since that kingdom has personally arrived, and since that kingdom will be completely fulfilled in a day to come, I want you to imagine the, this world until the, Jesus returns. What he's talking about in these paragraphs, these antithetical sayings, is that this is a vision of a world where the love was genuine and unconditional because it was received from the God of our creation. Love that is genuine and unconditional is reigning where the kingdom of God is being lived out. That's why when somebody slaps your cheek, you turn the other cheek. Because that's what the kingdom of God is like. Because if you come up and slap me and I slap you back, it may make me feel better for a few seconds. But the fight is on then, right? Yeah, really. That doesn't accomplish anything for Christ's sake. That makes me just like the person that hit me. Makes me no better. When the person hits me wrongly on one cheek and I turn the other, and even if he slaps me there, I'm still doing something that the world can't understand and the world will notice. I'm refusing to return anger with more anger. I'm refusing to respond to violence with more violence. I'm refusing to be taken out of the reign of God and put on just a purely fallen human level. I'm willing to sacrifice my right to strike back in order that perhaps my love might witness to that person who is filled with such anger and violence that they would hit another person. Is that strong? Yep, that's strong. That's strong stuff. And when we hear it, we're kind of like the 10-year-old girl. Sometimes we think, are you sure that's really what that means? He couldn't really have been serious, could he? Wasn't that hyperbole? I don't think it really was because we get hit a lot of times not physically in our world in our nation but we get hit emotionally and spiritually and even in ways that are so inappropriate in our world and we have to decide how we will respond back it's easy to return violence to those who are violent toward us but it's not the way of the kingdom of God it's just not the way there where God's rule reigns where God's reign is ruling our lives, we don't behave that way. The, re the reign of God enables us to live out in that tension a true life that results in exercising the human capacity to do amazing things that defy our natural instincts. Somebody hits you, it's natural to strike back. Only the power of God inside us can enable us to overcome 
that human instinct and not me anger with anger. It's kind of what Gandhi was sharing with the world in his fight. You don't have to respond to anger with anger. There is another way and a better way and a higher way. When these instincts are overcome and we behave like Jesus would behave in a situation, amazing things are being set up in the kingdom on earth. Amazing things are going on. God is infusing us with the strength to live out at a higher level among the people of the world in such a way that the world will never be the same. Life in the kingdom has already begun. You can't wait to go to heaven when you die. You're in heaven, brothers and sisters, because you are believers. It's already here. It's not full and complete. There's still evil and injustice around us. But inside us, we're protected by the Holy Spirit if we will just open ourselves up to the Spirit's power. Can you imagine the impact on one family and their extended family members if they lived this kind of life? Can you imagine what it would say if they were so filled with the love of their family, at least, that they were able to take and to take and to take and not give back in similar evil ways? Can you imagine what it would be like in a family that was touched by someone who would dare to try and live like Jesus? Can you imagine what that would look like in a church? In this family of Christ right here, what does it look like when we are at our best and just making the decision to love our neighbor as ourselves, regardless of what it costs me. But rather, mindful of what Jesus has given me in order that I might live as a way that shines light on my Savior's death and works as salt within the world in which I live. That kind of righteousness exceeds the kind of legalistic righteousness that was sometimes practiced amongst the Pharisees and Sadducees and amongst the Christians of our own day and age and our own culture. The question of the day might ought to be, be this in response to these antitheses. How do we enact the love of neighbor regardless of their behavior? You say, that's just too hard a question. What does that really mean? You don't mean all my neighbors, right? You don't mean the one down the street, you know, the jerk that's the terror of the neighborhood. You certainly don't mean that. The one that makes faces at me every time I go by on Sunday morning to church, you, you don't mean that neighbor. What if it meant every person we come into contact with who didn't know Christ as well as those who do know Christ? What if it was means, meant to say to those who are hearing that day, Regardless of your own cost, regardless of the sacrifice you might make, live like Jesus. They didn't understand it then, but when he hung up on that cross and gave his life for them, and as they contemplated in the years to come, they began to grasp what it meant. Because you see, Jesus lived exactly the way he was calling them to live, a fully human man. God flesh, flesh God, who came, and when he came to this earth, everybody noticed how he lived. You say, well, what does that mean at home? 
It means if you're living with a spouse who's not a believer, the little and the many ways in which you interact with your spouse have the possibility and the potentiality because of the love that's within you to bring them to Christ. Because you see, it's hard to overcome the true power of love that is unselfish. And you may be thinking, my spouse is too demanding. That, that person would kill me if I did that. <laughs> well, maybe. But if you died giving your life in such a way that that spouse believed toward the, even if it was toward the end, is that a witness for Christ? Preacher, do you know how hard that is? A lot of us sitting out here are on the second marriage already. I know that. I know that. But what if you treat your second marriage like it's your first, and you still go about giving yourself to your spouse in the kind of ways that makes their life complete? What if you go about all of your life that way? Not just living by the letter of the law, but living by the spirit of grace that Jesus exemplified in our midst. You've heard it said, but I say, be perfect in love. Be perfect in love. But be perfect in love. Well, you don't be perfect in love. Well, it's going to be so be perfect in love. My neighbor will have all of my tools be perfect in love. He may never give them back. Buy other tools. <laughs> Sacrifice your tool barn for your neighbor's soul. You say, but they may never believe. Love everybody. But they don't love me. All the more reason to love and to pray for them. And you say, that's just too hard. I think this passage says it's not. I think this passage says if we want to be followers of God, that's the way we live as disciples. Not just the saints among us. It's kind of humorous at times if you think about it. Some people, they start talking about thinking about saints. What they usually think about is they think about the three or four in their church are the best. Am I out of step? Pretty close? Okay. Yeah, there's a lot. You've got to live dangerously. But I might get hurt. Yeah, well, they killed Jesus. And then he was with God. Is it risky? You bet. Is it costly? You bet. Is it worth it? That's the question. You've heard it said, Jesus says, but I say, now the question is, what do you say? Do you say, I can explain it away? Do you say, well, he really meant that just for that little group of individuals, not for me. Do you say, well, he knows that's just a point out that we'll never be righteous, and so therefore, we don't have to worry about that too much. We're saved by grace anyway. I'm just a human. I'm so tired of appearing I'm just a human. The 
compassionate and cheering well into this one has perfected the idea of letting ourselves off the hook because we're all sinners anyway, so we're just going to keep sinning. I don't intend to sin just because I think I'm already going to heaven. Somebody saw me today, hadn't seen me in a while, and said, you lost some weight, hadn't you? He's recovering in the back. I hugged him so hard I hurt him. <laughs> they obviously hadn't seen me in a long time. It's hard on this body to tell when you've lost a little weight. But every five-pound segment adds up, and I get a little more like who I really am, just in terms of weight. It's the same in my spiritual progress. I keep working at intending to be the person God made it possible for me to be. Be perfect means perfect in love to the best of your ability despite what others do. I do believe it's an individual ethic, and I do believe it's for every individual. I don't know about all the national implications and the corporate ethics that we struggle with. I do believe that corporate ethics and individual ethics are different. I don't really expect my country to be my Jesus. I don't expect my country to be my church. I expect my church to be the church. And I expect the people of God to be the people of God, as I expect it of me. Whatever the rest of the country does may help us or hurt us, but it will still always be possible to practice the reign of God in our own lives to the extent we're willing to love those around us, even when it's costly. Father in heaven, we thank you that when Jesus sat down to teach that day, he started at the top. As he had already begun his ministry, then this time in this big public setting, Jesus was willing to say, here's, here's where you strive to go. Here's who you need to strive to be like. Don't just strive to follow some law, but strive to be a person of love who gives himself for others. That's the way of the Christ. That's the way of the cross. That's the way of being a follower of God. Lord, if there's somebody here who just has never gotten that, has never accepted Christ as their Savior and received that great gift of love and mercy and grace, that power to forgive because they've experienced forgiveness for themselves, I'd love to offer them that gift today. If there's someone here, Lord, who's struggling to live a Christian life, although they are a Christian, who needs the power of the collective community of faith to be the best them they can be, Nudge their hearts, Lord, and bring them to us so that we might be the face and the hands and the feet of the body of Christ today in our world. Let us worship, Lord, as we sing this song. And let any who need to respond by coming forward or just coming and praying to do so this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your Son, our Savior.